I'm Boba Fett. I'm Steve Lascalzo, and this is The Way. Welcome to our first recap and discussion of The Book of Boba Fett, streaming now on Disney+. The first episode became available at 3 a.m. Eastern on December 29th, 2021. New episodes come weekly on Wednesdays until all seven chapters are out. That's right. The Book of Boba Fett is taking a page from The Mandalorian's playbook and giving episodes both chapter numbers and names. Chapter 1 is also known as Stranger in a Strange Land. There's a lot of possible meanings behind that phrase. The brief and main description of the episode on the show's Disney Plus page are the same. Simply, Boba Fett holds court. Let's get started talking Fett. Actually, there is one other matter, if I may. Now for a note about This Is The Way Podcast's partnership with Cufflinks.com. The Book of Boba Fett has arrived on Disney Plus, and Christmas has come and gone. If you missed out on a nice shiny gift, don't worry. You don't need to hire someone through the guild to bring it home. Go to cufflinks.com and take a look at their sanctuary's many sundry offerings. New bounties pop up all the time, and now they have necklaces to add to their bracelets, cufflinks, socks, and ties. Boba Fett? He doesn't need to be your favorite. Grogu, the Mando, Vader, R2-D2, Yoda, Chewie. There are more than 3,000 licensed accessories made by this small family-run business. Cufflinks.com is the exclusive, officially licensed provider of cufflinks for dozens of top names. And not just Star Wars. Browse through a selection of Disney, Dune, Star Trek, Harry Potter, Game of Thrones, DC Comics, and fans of our This Is The Way Phase 4 podcast may recall our love for the great selection of Marvel-themed items. Maybe you're looking for top fashion design names or sports-themed items from leagues like MLB, NFL, NCAA, NHL, and the NBA. The men's accessories you'll find are of the highest quality. We're talking tie bars and clips, shirt studs and stays, lapel pins, money clips, pocket squares, socks, ties, necklaces, bracelets, and cufflinks. If you decide to shop, make sure you check out their page for their current deals, and you can enter the way 15 at checkout for 15% off everything in your cart, with no minimum to buy. The Way 15 will be available throughout This Is The Way podcast's coverage of the Book of Boba Fett. Whether you want to let everyone know how much of a rebel you are, show off your imperial side, or rule the room with respect, Cufflinks.com has you covered. Check out Cufflinks.com today. I would not be surprised if you receive another delegation in the near future. The director for episode one is Robert Rodriguez. I would think that's to be expected because he's the showrunner. I wasn't shocked to see John Favreau get the credit for writing this episode, but it also says created by him as well. Now, we all know George Lucas gets the credit for creating the characters and the story of Star Wars. I can only imagine Favreau is getting some credit for the resurrection story of Boba Fett, so to speak. Now, if you remember, the Mandalorian came out of Favreau's desire to tell this very story, the one about Boba Fett. 
It was Dave Filoni who coached him on how to pitch the show about a bounty hunter wearing Beskar to Disney because he explained to Favreau, you know, Boba Fett was considered history even though there was some apocrypha from the Legends material. It was the success of The Mandalorian, I think, that allowed Favreau to name his pleasure and give Boba Fett this chance to breathe air again. He did so in that show, The Mandalorian. And that further success, I think, gave him the opportunity to make an entire show about him. That's when he had to pick a guy to run the show who knew the Western vibe, and Robert Rodriguez certainly does. Favreau, Filoni, and Rodriguez share executive producer credits on this one, as well with Kathleen Kennedy and Colin Wilson. Back as Boba Fett is Temuera Morrison. His story is well known. He played Jango Fett in the prequel movies, uh, Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, before he was beheaded by Mace Windu in a Geonosian fighting pit. He came back as the grown-up version of his clone in The Mandalorian. Now, I'm not sure if it was his feat we saw in Season 1 at the end of Chapter 5, The Gunslinger, but we certainly saw him in Season 2 several times. Joining him as a star in the cast is Ming-Na Wen, the voice of Mulan and the voice of Fennec Shand in The Bad Batch, but also the live-action actor behind Shand in Season 1 of The Mandalorian and Season 2, and now the right-hand woman and master assassin for Fett. I do want to point out some additional acting credits because... I think they're interesting or important. And maybe you don't, but you can always skip ahead if you want. For example, Daniel Logan is again credited as young Boba Fett. Even though the scene we saw was just a clip from the Attack of the Clones, it was an unused one, but it was a very similar clip to the one we saw in the movie. How about this? The Tusken Raider kid, Wesley Kimmel, Jimmy Kimmel's son. Also, it took this credit for me to look him up and then realized that he was in WandaVision, at least in three of the commercials Doctor Strange was using to try and send messages to Wanda through the hex. Matt Berry, Laszlo Cravensworth from What We Do in the Shadows, is 8D8's voice. I believe this is the same 8D8 droid torturing a gonk droid in Return of the Jedi. That droid did not speak in that movie, so he gets to give him a voice now. David Piskizi is credited, and I believe from IMDb, he plays the mayor of Mas Espa's Major Domo. He does a great job playing that guy so smarmy. I don't know if he has a name yet, but he did survive this episode, so we may see him again. Jennifer Beals, Miss Flashdance herself, plays Garza Whip, the Twi'lek proprietor of the club Fennec and Boba both visit in Mas Espa called The Sanctuary. Xavier Jimenez played the Tuscan chief, but played a Tusken Raider in Chapter 9 of The Mandalorian, so I'm not sure if he's supposed to be the same character in both, since we don't see his face. It's possible this is a totally different tribe of Tusken Raiders. And this guy also played a part on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. It was a show that I used to watch. Joanna Bennett is an actor and stunt woman who has worked on several Marvel and DC movies and shows, and she was the warrior that beat up Fett in one of his flashbacks. Don Denninger has done stunts, costume, makeup, special effects, and a little acting. And she gets to play the Rodian prisoner alongside Fett. I don't think she does the voice, though. Garfalaquax is Barry Lowen. And I believe that this is the Aqualish Don we first see before the throne. Lowen is listed as inhabiting the suit of the Mandalorian, uncredited for several episodes of The Mandalorian. 
Director Robert Rodriguez voiced Trandoshan Doc Strassi, but the performance was reportedly done by Stephen O. Young. I could not find any history of the character, but Favreau has made some for Fett and this reptilian by giving the line to Tem about it being weird since he used to work for him. So maybe we'll see more of that or hear about more of that. Frank Trigg, the MMA fighter, commentator, and referee, plays one of two Gamorrean guards, and the other is played by the guy who is the baby in the baby carriage in The Untouchables, Colin Himes. How about that for a deep dive? If you don't know what I'm talking about, you should first go back and watch The Untouchables. But if you have and you don't remember, it's when the carriage starts to go down the steps during that gunfight in the train station, and Elliot Ness stops it and saves the baby. That scene also being an homage to the Odessa Steps Massacre in a 1925 movie, The Battleship Potemkin. But he is the baby. Uh, One of the Gamorrean guards is the baby in that movie. The Twilight servers, one male and one female, they don't appear to have any significance prior to their roles here. And that's really going to be the difference between you getting a mention by me and not. Sometimes the second page of credits is quite revealing. This is where we find out that the assassins attacking in the Moss Espa Square are Nightwind assassins. Paul Darnell is credited as a stunt performer. I can't find a mention of them in Wikipedia, so I suppose we'll either hear more about them in the coming episodes or I'm missing something obvious. By viewing the credits, I see that the Sabak dealer is not named, though it does sort of look like the same kind of droid as R3X Rex from like Batu. I, it's not confirmed, so I'm just not going to let Disney get away with that until they confirm that. The astromech-looking droids who are offering drinks in the Sanctuary are not credited, nor is the protocol-looking server droid in the background of that scene. That's a possible candidate for UK2B. The other possibility is that the droid that captured the two Gamorians is UK2B because it's much more likely that this is what Chris Bartlett is credited for a character that could show up more than just once as a server. Bartlett has done a ton of work as C-3PO for Disney. Now, he wasn't in the movies, but anytime they like have a Disney celebration on TV or something like that, Chris Bartlett does the part. He was also Q-9-0-0 in The Mandalorian, the sixth episode, and then I think in season two, in episode two, in the ship, Zero was there too, right? It was the droid that got the hole blown in its back. When it was going after Baby Yoda, Grogu. Uh, He's also played an RA-7 protocol droid, a bounty hunter droid, and the droid teacher, all in The Mandalorian. He was also the lava boat ferryman at the end of Season 1. Very well. Okay, runtime. The episode is listed as running 39 minutes. But, you know, if you know me, I don't count the credits. First action, two credits for this one is 34 minutes, 15 seconds. But I do recommend you watch the credits. First, we're treated to the concept art that gives us a great idea about what the artists envisioned from the script. And for instance, you'd miss the protocol droid head on the ground near the throne Boba Fett is sitting in right before the credits run to black. Yeah, go back and take a look. There's a protocol droid head there. And second, you get a first full taste of the theme music that Ludwig Göransson is playing. Like The Mandalorian, we're going to wait to see how the theme music fits the character and the story. And before we get to the story, we're going to have one more short break. Boba! A mating 
like a hacking puta. So, 34 minutes and change is not a long episode, right? But I'm going to reserve judgment. Maybe this was the shortest one. We'll have to see. It's not a good sign, but there are six more episodes to go, so I'll give Robert Rodriguez a break on this one until we see that maybe they're all short. That's just not really great when you only have seven episodes to tell the story. Okay, our last images of Boba Fett in live action came in a post-credit scene that set up this very show, Boba Fett taking over Jabba's palace from Bib Vortuna. What kind of... This show opens with some establishing shots of Jabba's palace, but we're not exactly picking up right where the Mandalorian left us. Fennec swigging Spachka and Boba sitting on the throne. It's quiet now. Quieter even than when Leia tried to rescue Han. We see an empty throne room and throne. We see the top floor of the palace where there is a Bacta-tank on its side, almost like a cryo or sleep chamber. It's filled with Bacta, and Boba Fett is inside, breathing through an oxygen tube. I took a freeze frame, looked at the room. The only thing I could really recognize was Fett's armor on display on the left side of the room as we zoom in on the pod. Boba Fett is not getting a good rest. He's having nightmares or dreams. Now, I tweeted out less than an hour before the show became available that I thought we'd pick up with Jabba's barge and flames and Boba trying to get out of the pit of Carcoon, I was almost right. Boba Fett has some flashbacks. The first is of his home, the first home he had, the watery world of Kamino, as we saw it in Attack of the Clones. But I also think that the shots of the water are a nod to those of us who know about his birth, if you can call it that, which came in Nalase's underwater secret lab, also the home to Omega, who we meet in the Bad Batch. If you're not aware, Boba's first name before he was given to Jango Fett was actually Alpha, as he's Jango's first and genetically unaltered clone, but he's not the last Omega was. We then see a young Boba Fett picking up his father's head on Geonosis, a different version of the scene we saw in Attack of the Clones. The next scene we get is the one that I've been waiting for since his first appearance on The Mandalorian, Boba Fett in the belly of the Sarlacc. You will therefore be taken to the Dune Sea and cast into the pit of Karkoon, the nesting place of the all-powerful Sarlacc. In his belly you will find a new definition of pain and suffering as you are slowly digested over a thousand years. It's creepy. It's claustrophobic. Gross. Dark. It's probably also poisonous with all the acid and Boba seems to be getting close to blacking out. He flips down his targeting antenna, his rangefinder, and switches on a light, sees a stormtrooper there in the belly. I absolutely wondered how there was one there. I don't remember any on Jabba's barge, but the creature digests his meals slowly, of course, meaning this guy could have been there for quite some time. Boba certainly doesn't care about his roommate, making his way over in the belly of the beast to the stormtrooper where he rips out an air hose, gives himself some air. Maybe he needed it to breathe or to help him power up his flamethrower, because the next thing he does is put his fist through the belly's wall and starts the barbecue. And then the next thing we see is the wreck of the barge on the surface and pans down and an arm breaks through the sand. Boba climbed himself free, collapses in the sun, sand suns, (laughs) sand caked on his armor, hopefully it's stalling the effects of the acid. 
Now, I wonder how many people saw this and recalled Patton Oswalt on Parks and Rec. I certainly did, because not only did it become a meme, but my wife and I have been doing a rewatch of Parks and Rec. The citizen filibuster scene was hilarious. I, I wonder if Robert Rodriguez had any of that in mind when he was storyboarding. Maybe it's having waited so long for this moment, but I'm just glad to have gotten to see it. But the flashback isn't over. It's night now, and a sand crawler approaches. The wreck of the barge is going to get scavenged by Jawas. They help themselves to whatever they see, and I find it creepy that they're peeling Boba out of his shell of armor. Sort of like that one-eyed gangster Gore Koresh said he would do to Mandos at the beginning of Chapter 9 of The Mandalorian. Boba can't fight back against the Jawas. He's too weak. They knock him out. And he stays there, skin scarred by the acid until the next day, when sand people get their turn at the wreckage. They tie him up, give him some sort of animal paste or goo that wakes him, and gives him enough energy to at least walk behind the line of banthas, at least at first. The sandstorm around him seems blinding, and as a captive, he's not getting any special treatment. He can barely keep up until he can't. And right out of a Sergio Leone film, he's dragged into the Tuscan Raider camp. Some of the raiders surround him, and that's when we get our first title slate for the Book of Boba Fett. And we learn the name of the episode is Stranger in a Strange Land. I mentioned earlier that this could have several meanings. First is the biblical, Gershom the son of Moses by Zipporah being named so because Moses was a stranger in a strange land. The second chapter of Exodus sees Moses being born all the way up to him having his first child. He's set adrift by his mother, but saved by the enemy of his people. Boba didn't have a mother and wasn't exactly laid among the reeds and found by a pharaoh's daughter, but he was on a water planet and he was orphaned at an early age. He finds himself part of a world that is undergoing a huge change. Remember, the time from Jabba's palace barge being destroyed to the fall of the Empire is probably a few days. We don't know how long Boba was in the Sarlacc pit, or how long his time with the Sand People ends up being, but he's out of a job. The biblical connection certainly has some threads to pull with the way Boba expects to be treated, sitting on the throne and so on, but I think more likely is the connection to the sci-fi novel by Robert Heinlein, which took its name from that Bible passage... Exodus 2.22, but that book takes the theme in a very different direction. That's the story of a human born on Mars who comes back to learn about the ways of people on Earth, and it's through a religion he creates, reorganizes the world, gives people psychokinetic powers. Now, he's reorganizing the crime syndicates, right? But I don't think Boba Fett's rule is going to bring about Jedi psychokinetic powers. But maybe it does catch the attention of some who know or use the Force. It would certainly be interesting to me if we see Sith-inclined Force users in this show, since we did see Jedi in The Mandalorian. Not everybody uses the Force is going to be good, right? You're not all-powerful. Well, I should be. Someday I will be. I will be the most powerful Jedi ever. So when the show resumes, it's still in Boba's latest flashback. He's being prodded by a young Tusken, and this is, I think, the son of the Chief that we're supposed to understand that. He and the other youths take advantage of Boba. He's tied to a stake out in the middle of the camp, so they're prodding him, beating him, and then finally knock him out. When he comes to at night, he's got a, a buddy over there. <laughs> uh, a Rodian has been taken prisoner as well. 
Maybe it was a pilot who crashed somewhere in the desert. At least it looks like it's wearing a flight suit to me. And there's a Massif sleeping near a fire, and Bobo looks around and tries to escape since nobody seems to be watching. But the Massif wakes up, charges Boba, and he manages to subdue the dog-like creature, knock it unconscious, but he's also very caring to it. He kind of pets the mouth. We've seen these guard dog types before in Attack of the Clones and the Mandalorian. Then he uses the sharp teeth of the beast to cut his bonds loose, and then offers to cut loose the Rodian, but it shouts and alerts the camp. The Tusken Raider chieftain's son comes running with his gaffy stick, but Boba easily takes it from him and knocks the boy to the ground. Rather than beat him as he was beaten, Boba just relents, and then he runs off. He doesn't get far, and I have to wonder what his plan might have been had he and the Rodian made it out of the camp without water or provisions. At any rate, the chief and several raiders catch up to him after the massive slows him down. The chief allows one of his warriors to face Boba in combat, and we see Boba is not accustomed to wielding a club yet. It's been mostly blasters and armor tech for him. The warrior, a woman, maybe the chief's wife, easily beats Boba, and he's once again knocked out. He must learn how to use the gaffy stick from her, because in The Mandalorian and later in this episode, in fact, he's clearly better at wielding one. I don't know what the significance of the ethereal colors and the camera exposure in this shot is, but it's going to continue into his next dream sequence, but it's cut off when he wakes in the Bacta tank. And that, to me, might be a little clue. Fennec Shand is waking him up. Wake up, boss. So she's one of the most trusted associates he has, right? She's there when he's at his most vulnerable. I mean, he has to trust someone, right? Because he's as vulnerable as a baby in a womb when he's in that thing. He's healing in the tank. But while he's doing so, he can't defend himself. He switches it off and exits the back tank and he tells Shan the dreams are back. Maybe it's what is planned for such an auspicious day that has him a little nervous and he's reminiscing. Or maybe it's something else. She tells him people are lining up to pay respects. To me, Star Wars continues to do this well. It brings in Western movie vibes, the Japanese feudal vibe, but also the Mafia movie vibe. Paying respects. You know, you combine those things, change the settings to space. It's its, its own thing now. We get a quick suit-up montage where his armor's being put on by servant robots, almost like a medieval king getting his armor put on by squires, and it culminates with the helmet. Just like that, we're in the throne room where the Aqualish Mafia boss is paying tribute. The Aqualish species is what Ponda Baba was in The New Hope. This is most definitely not him. This guy has both his arms and he has a white skin rather than gray. We quickly find out that Boba and Fennec are in need of a protocol droid because they don't fully understand what this Aqualish told them. It's something about friendship and it's kind of played for a laugh. He isn't named, but I believe that the character is listed in the credits as Garfalakwax. Sounds almost like a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy name. We next get a character that's listed in the closed captioning as 8D8. It's the torture droid from Jabba's Palace in Return of the Jedi, and that is who is introducing all these Dons. There was some back and forth for me on this one, however, because I thought when I first watched it that it was UK2B from the credits because of an IMDB listing. But my reasoning was... The UK was maybe a tip-off to British actor Matt Berry, who plays Laszlo Cravensworth on What We Do in the Shadows. 
He's also Stephen Toast on Toast of London. This droid, though, is listed in the closed captioning as 8D8, and you can kind of tell it's Matt Berry by some of the lines. So 8D8, Matt Berry, introduces a Trandoshan next. Trandoshans are the species of Bosk, one of the bounty hunters that was in Empire Strikes Back that was alongside Boba Fett when Darth Vader sent them out to find Han. This one is called Doc Strassi, and I believe it's carrying the hide of a Wookiee. And that's just awful to me. The episode of Clone Wars called Wookiee Hunt is basically all about how Trandoshans kind of hunt captives for sport. And Chewbacca was in that episode. Now, Chewbacca is alive and that's not his pelt. But it seems as if this Wookiee wasn't as lucky. The voice of Strassi is supposedly provided by director Robert Rodriguez. At some point in his past, Boba worked for Doc Strassi. So I don't know if this is the last time we'll see him if Robert Rodriguez is giving the voice, but now it's the other way around. Doc Strassi is paying tribute to Boba Fett, so it's kind of weird for everybody involved. Boba is called the Daimyo, which is a Japanese feudal position, a vassal to the Shogun. Now, it could be also a Trandoshan term, or a lesser-known title Jabba held. We do seem to confirm also that the throne is near enough to Mos Espa to be considered part of that settlement, since Strassi creepily wishes him never to leave the place. Even when a Trandoshan pays you a compliment, it sounds like a threat. Next up is His Excellency Mock Shays, mayor of Mas Espa and its surrounding plateaus, except it isn't. He has sent his major domo in his place, and it's a smarmy Twi'lek. Here we get a line from Shan from the trailers where she mentions insolence and Jabba's menagerie. She says that because not only has the mayor not sent tribute, he expects some in return. When the Major Domo leaves, he indicates they should expect another delegation. Fett tells Shan to watch out for him, and she tells him she watches everyone. It's interesting to me, though, that the Twi'leks are still so openly treated as second class, or maybe rather a servant class by the world around them. For every General Sindula, there seem to be ten Ulas, you know, the dancers. Even the one running the club in this episode has some working for her as servants. Well, finally, there are two Gamorians that are brought before the throne, loyal to their master's Jabba and Bib Fortuna before him, fighting rather than giving up. Now, I thought the same thing here as Boba Fett. You know, here are two that can be trusted as long as they swear loyalty. But I can also see 8D8 and Fennec Shan's side of the argument that strength needs to be projected. I thought for a moment he was going to have them fight to the death. But this is the same kind of Fett that we saw in The Mandalorian. He's operating by a code that might actually not be the best for business, but it does seem to be the most fair. The problem with running a crime syndicate is fair doesn't really apply. I'm certainly going to be interested in seeing how many times Boba Fett ignores Shan before he pays for it. First, he didn't kill the Major Domo, and now he's letting them live against her advice. The Gamorreans, though, kneel before him and pledge loyalty. This is a bad idea. I loved the music and the shot that brings us down into the streets of Mas Espa. You know, this is the same town that Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon Jinn visited. This is where Anakin was found. Maybe in the out, you know, the, the outer plateaus, but this is that town. So maybe Watto is wandering around somewhere. Maybe there's a Sebulba sighting somewhere nearby. I don't know. They're walking through town, and we hear Fett has ignored Shand again when she says he should have let the Gamorreans carry him into town on a litter. 
Now, that might have been Jabba's way, but Fett wants to do things differently. She tells him things would go smoother if he accepted their ways, but what she's also saying here is, you gotta listen to me. I think it's partly she's giving reasonable advice, and she knows how things work. But also, she doesn't think he's going to be able to pull off what he wants to do. I know she appears loyal too, but I wouldn't be surprised to see her sitting on the throne by the end of this series. And Boba Fett might go back to the ways of his father and be a bounty hunter. I'm just a simple man trying to make my way in the universe. I'm not even suggesting that it has to come as a result of a betrayal. I, I think she just might be better suited to being the ruler than him. He might be happier as a bounty hunter. Anyway, they enter a cantina or a spa. And not that I recognized it at all. But the band is playing a variation of the cantina theme. How do I know? Well, it says so right in the captioning. It also doesn't give us the name of the alien fronting the band. But I think we all recognize Max Rebo. Apparently the blue Ortolan musician escaped the sail barge before it exploded. Because he's there playing. Either that or it's a lookalike, but I prefer to dream big here. I think it's, I think it is Max Rebo. He has an astromech drummer and a Biff playing some kind of guitar instrument. I don't think this is figuring Dan because he's playing a guitar and not one of those weird wind instruments. Fett and Shan are quickly approached by another astromech and it's serving drinks. They refuse the offer. I guess it's been hard for all these R-series droids to find work, you know, who needs an astromech now that the war's over? The new crime lords have business on their minds. They're waiting for Garza Thwip, proprietor of Sanctuary, the bar. I guess that's what she calls this little slice of paradise. What a name, Garza Thwip. Two different colored Twi'leks, one male and one female, approach and ask if they want their helmets serviced and cleaned while they wait. <laughs> I know it's literally their helmets, but I can't help but imagine that this is a nod to the other kind of work traditionally done in saloons in westerns. Lord Helmet, what? You need it on the bridge, sir. Knock on my door! Knock next time! Yes, sir. Did you see anything? No, sir. I didn't see you playing with your dolls again. Good! Shand declines, and then it's Boba who says, you know, sure, let's, you know, we'll take both of our helmets. He keeps on going against her. This time, he even spits back her line to her about it going smoother by accepting their ways. Jennifer Beals comes forth smiling as Garza Fwip, and her playing the character tells me that we're going to see more of her. She asks if they want to partake in their sundry offerings, something that sounds like it's out of the Little House of the Prairie or something. She, like the Major Domo, often uses the term apologies. She's always saying, apologies, apologies. She definitely plays the Twi'lek part of her up, and I wouldn't be surprised to learn that she's a lot tougher than she comes off here. Fett declines her offer of entertainment, says he wants to talk business, so she switches gears, and we get one of the funniest lines so far to me. Would you like your Gamorreans hosed down and fed while we are sequestered? <laughs> hosed down and fed. Fett says it's he's going to be quick. He, this is going to be a quick meeting. He introduces Shand as... Master Assassin Fennec Shand, but just says, I'm Boba Fett, and that he replaced Bib Fortuna. She apologizes for not having seen his litter come into town. He points out, you know, he's doing things a little differently. And then Twi'leks, and there are many apologies. She keeps going, apologies, apologies. 
Fett then tells her that she can be assured her business will continue to thrive, and I feel like this is the protection pay threat. Fwip pays him the compliment of calling him Lord Fett, and summons the servants with their helmets. She thanks Boba for the introduction, but also for making the long journey. So, is Jabba's palace close to Mos Espa or not? She drops in a line about it being his place now, and she touches him gently on the gauntlet when she does it, like kind of stroking his arm. So I'm sure Shand is taking all this in, but I wonder if Boba Fett is getting the subtext like Shand does. She also notices, Shand, that his helmet is full of Republic credits, and hers does not. Huh. Yours looks shinier than mine. They exit, and Boba tells Shand what she already knows. Jabba had lots of vassals, and they got a lot of ground to cover. They straight up ignore Bib Fortuna's five years or so, right? Jabba had the vassals. He doesn't even mention Bib Fortuna. Remember, he's got his armor back, and he has Shand. This all takes place after The Mandalorian Season 2. I don't think Fortuna had an iron grip, but he probably ran the playbook for Jabba, so... He probably just continued things well enough for people to enjoy the status quo. We've seen several instances already, though, of Boba Fett doing things differently from the jump. And Shand tells us so. In fact, Shand tells Boba here that Fett rarely left his chambers, and she can do this job on her own. I can make the rounds without you. Jabba rarely left his chambers. Jabba ruled with fear. I intend to rule with respect. We get that line from the trailer, but more impactful, if you ask me, is Fennec's line back to him. If I may. Speak freely. In difficult times, fear is a sure bet. Because this is a TV show, we instantly get an example to prove her right, right? A member of the Foot Clan leaps off the roof and rolls to his feet. Several other members of the Nightwind Assassins surround Fett and Shan. I called him Foot Clan because... Kind of reminded me of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Foot Clan. So these guys in red and black with power shields and some kind of electronic riot control baton or staves. They're poking at them and trying to subdue them. Boba and Fennec are going to get worn down if this continues. And there's even a maneuver that uh, Boba kneels down. Fennec tries to jump off his knee or something to get over the top of the shields, but it doesn't work. It looks like Shan's going to be right, and Fett should have listened, and this is going to be the payback for him not listening to her. But our first taste that perhaps Fett's way is better comes when the Gamorreans join the fight. The shield wall is broken by the fat green pigmen, as my sister used to call them. Fett and Shan still have their hands full, but they're no longer trapped, even if they're still getting zapped. Fett, at one point, grabs the mace or staff of one of the assassins and throws him to the ground, and we see a little of the brutality with a club that we've known him for recently. So he's better. It's almost like showing us that in the flashbacks he didn't know how to use it, and now he does. He brings it down on the man with a menacing growl, in fact. Shan starts to hold her own as well as the assassins have their hands full with the Gamorreans, and finally they're driven off and they climb a building to try and escape. Fennec starts to give chase, but not before Boba uses his gauntlet to fire a missile at one, blows him up on the building before he can get up. That's a great shot. Boba blowing up the transport, the troop transport in the tragedy episode, and Cobb Vanth using the missile to blow up the mining <laughs> guys who are trying to get away. I just love this. The, the guys are trying to get away, and they get blown up by some missile. It's, it's, it's just great. 
Nice shot. I was aiming for the other one. Shan parkours up the building, and Fett tells her he wants one of them alive. Then he himself retreats with the aid of the Gamorians, telling them, get him back to the back to pod. So, he wasn't carried into town, but he was carried out, right? Fennec, meanwhile, gives chase to two of the assassins, manages to avoid death, because they throw something at her and she flips out of the way, and then she parkours her way to a two-on-one fight. She wins and is faced with having to decide what does she do with just her and the weapon she took and two guys. So she kicks one of them off the building, and the other stares her down behind his CDC-approved mask, and it looks like he's got both facial scarring and facial tattoos. The Gamorreans have Boba back in his room on top of the palace and are unceremoniously stripping his armor from him this time. What a difference from suiting up. This also read more like a scene out of a medieval king being wounded in battle and then he has his armor ripped off his body as they're putting him on his bed. Here, the life-saving and healing effects of the Bactopod are going to help him recuperate. So, I wonder if this reliance on the Bacta has side effects, and maybe the dreams are because of it. Maybe Favreau and Filoni and Rodriguez are establishing here in live action that a reliance on this medicine might affect your brain. I wonder why Sidious didn't allow himself to be healed by Bacta. Maybe there is an in-universe thing that I haven't read or something, uh, but I just wonder why. I know there is work that he did with his scarring, but he also hid his deformity from the public just as he used it to contend the Jedi. Maybe it's a well-known property in the world that we know that it sort of affects your dreams. I wonder if the dream-like state we're going to see in you know the dream, the, how it's different colored, maybe that's the medicine affecting the brain. You know, use this stuff too much, it makes you paranoid. Dream things you might have forgotten because, you know, it's reconnecting neural pathways in your brain. It's healing your brain. I would be thrilled to hear a little bit more about this because before Bacta was discovered, there was Colto. That's from video games and I actually believe the High Republic novels too. So maybe there's a difference in this stuff. Maybe it's kind of like a, you know, a drug, an opiate. You want to buy some death sticks? You don't want to sell me death sticks. I don't want to sell you death sticks. You want to go home and rethink your life. I want to go home and rethink my life. Boba resumes his dreaming in the Bactopod. So we're back to his time with the Sand People. He is again prodded awake by the Chieftain's son. And again, the coloring is weird and then it kind of normalizes for us. This time the son's not going to beat him. He's going to take his pets out for a walk. He pulls the Rodian and Fett up off the stakes in the ground, walks them out into the desert with his massif, and the prisoners are bound by rope at the hands and connected by metal chains bound at their right ankles. It must be a long way, too. We get classic Star Wars dissolves to tell us that it's far. A center dissolve and a top-to-bottom dissolve. Nice dissolve. Finally, they get to a settlement in the distance, and we can see it's on fire. A moisture farm is being attacked by a gang on speeders. This is probably right around the time that the mining camp in Mos Pelga was in trouble, because we know from The Mandalorian Chapter 9 that the night the town celebrated the fall of the Empire was the time that it got attacked. That means soon, Cobb Vanth will make off with that Cantomo of Silicax crystals and come upon Boba's armor in the Sandcrawler. I guess every once in a while, both sunshine on a womp rat's tail. 
This moisture farm doesn't appear tied to Pelgo in any way, though. The group of four knocks out the farmer and paints a picture of graffiti on the wall. From Arabesh, it could be maybe an L and then the mirror image of the L, or maybe just a T. Or maybe it's just the symbol of some gang, I don't know. This scene doesn't have a payoff, but I absolutely trust the show to pay this off at some point in the future. And maybe it's to show us that, you know, maybe that the kid is going to go out and have them dig for water. And then here's what happens to people who, you know, farm their precious water from the air or the ground or wherever moisture farmers get it from. Maybe it was just to show that this is a place he could escape to. Or maybe he and the sand people rescue the farmer or something later on. Uh, Maybe it's something even better. I don't know. The reason it's odd here is because I wonder if there was something cut out. The show goes back to another dissolve. This one right to left. And that means the kids saw this fire, took the prisoners along to observe, and then they, they leave. He's taking them somewhere inside of a mountain range. And then they are told to dig. Why this far from the Tuscan camp? I'm wondering if this kid went looking for this area specifically because of what's about to happen to them. Maybe he was trying to make this happen, this event that's going to happen to them. The two are directed to dig and dig they do. The Rodian seems to have a much better go at finding these pods that they find. I went searching and I found a really cool article on what these might be from J.V. Shamari. And he wrote it on Forbes.com. Look it up. I don't know if these are, in fact, sea urchins from a time when the desert was the bottom of an ocean floor or something. But the article itself lays an idea of why water is so sacred to the nomadic Tuscans. At any rate, the Rodian keeps finding these things and keeps handing them over. But finally, when Boba finds one, he cracks it open for a drink for himself. The boys tries to beat him for it. But Boba doesn't let him. He grabs the stick. He ultimately does hand over the pod, and the boy pours it out just to show him who the boss is. Here, again, an example for Boba of cruelty from his oppressor, and he's not going to repay it in kind. He and the Rodian could probably team up, take out the boy and the dog, but the Rodian seems resigned to its fate. Boba, at least for the time being, seems okay with letting this charade play out. We can get to Anchorhead. I can get us off-world. It's not long before the boy overestimates himself and takes a nap. Boba tries once again conversing with the Rodian. The Rodian is pretending not to understand him and takes Fett frustratingly telling him he could strangle him with the chain to get the Rodian to reveal that he understands. The strangle with the chain thing set off an alarm in my head, though. Who, I wonder, most famously just days earlier from when Boba was captured, Ended the reign of a crime boss in the desert with a chain meant to imprison her. <laughs> Leia and Jabba? The Rodian gets back to digging, but starts to uncover something with scales. It's a multi-armed sand creature, and as far as I can tell, it has no prior appearances. But this thing looks like a CG version of like an old monster movie stop-motion creature. I can't explain it better than that. Maybe if you see it, you'll understand. The creature slams the Rodian into the sand... And when the Massif attacks it, it beats it away, knocks it out. It has Boba because the chains that bind him to the Rodian are still attached. It presses the Rodian into the sand and seems to be ready to crush Boba's head. Then the boy attacks, stabbing the creature in one of its feet with the pointy end of the gaffy stick. 
It's the only weapon they have in the area. The sand creature knocks the boy back, tosses away the stick, and the boy is easily overcome, and the creature looms over the Tuscan child, ready to finish it off. Then Boba Fett tosses his chains of bondage over the neck of the beast from behind, slowly chokes the life from it, doubling over the chains to make sure it's strangled lifeless. I don't know why the beast didn't throw itself on its back. You know, maybe it could have saved itself, but it doesn't. Boba stands triumphantly, gripping the chains that have now saved him and the chieftain's son. You can't really read a Tuscan's face for clues, but there is a sense to me that this boy earned a measure of respect for his captive. Boba Fett killing this creature is a little like the Mandalorian earning his signet from the Mudhorn to me. He rises a new man, and where he was once a captive, he passed a test of sorts. He could have killed the boy on several occasions, but he didn't. Now the boy and Boba make their way back to the camp with a trophy. The head of the sand creature is carried by the boy, and we don't see a translation of what he's saying. I think based on the crowd that gathers around him, though, the boy is taking credit. Boba Fett, meanwhile, walks back into camp, gaffy stick in one hand, and his chains in the other. The massif is walking behind him. The chief emerges from his tent, the warrior behind him. The boy seems to mime to others that he got behind the beast and choked it with his stick. But the chief knows what's up. He makes his way over near Boba Fett, and while the rest of the camp marvels at the beast's head, it's telling to me that the chief both offers water, but also allows his back to be turned to Boba. He is treating Boba with respect here. This, of course, is the very thing that Boba has been searching for, and maybe more than money, this is what Boba Fett desires. And that is where episode one ends for us. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. I very much enjoyed the first chapter of the book of Boba Fett. I would have liked to have had some podcast partners with me, but that's just not possible right now. I am looking for someone to join me. So if I find someone who has a similar schedule or can talk with me about the show in an intelligent manner, I will have someone on with me. I hope it's okay that it's just me for now. I know a lot of you have been accustomed to Tim and Andy, but I, I'm doing the best I can. You know, we got to see a lot of what the trailer advertised, and finally we get to see Boba Fett escape from the Sarlacc pit. What an amazing, amazing time we're living in. I hope they might delve deeper into what the Bacta might do to him. I think that might be a really cool little side thing. It doesn't have to be the focus of the show, but maybe this is starting to affect his brain, and maybe this is why Vader used it so much that maybe it affected his mind. I'm sure we're going to get to see more Crime Syndicate stuff, and I do hope we get off-world before too long. We still have yet to see the, the motorcycle girl... Uh, I'm sure that we're going to see more flashbacks. I wonder, though, if the story of Boba's eventual witness to Din Djarin riding across Tatooine in Chapter 9 is going to be the end of his flashbacks. Or maybe this ends midway, you know, all the flashbacks end midway through the season, or just at the end of next episode or something. Or maybe we see even more flashbacks. There's a lot they can do. I don't know how much we want to see. 
you know, appearance from Chewbacca, maybe some droids that we know, maybe even live action versions of characters we've seen in the Bad Batch or Rebels or the Clone Wars. They're certainly possible. I can't wait for the surprises that we're going to see. If you're one of the people, though, that had a problem with the episode, please tell me why. I cannot figure out why there's so many review titles and headlines that seem to be calling this show less than great. Now, I don't think I've seen terrible, but I love the first episode. There's no reveal like Grogu at the end of the first episode, but I don't think it needs it. To me, the reveal came at the very beginning, you know, the Sarlacc escape. We still have a lot to see from the trailers. We have a resolution to come from the visits with the Sand People and the visit to the mayor on tap. So there's a lot to look forward to and six more episodes to go. That's all we have for today, but please go check out the merchandise at cufflinks.com. And if you decide to shop there, remember 15% off site-wide with the code THEWAY15. Everything on the site, 15% off with that code. It's available until our coverage of this first season of The Book of Boba Fett comes to an end. Thank you very much to cufflinks.com for that promise. Email us, thisisthewaypodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at thisisthewaypod or on facebook.com at slash thisisthewaypod. The Book of Boba Fett Chapter 2 starts streaming January 5th, 2022. Until then, I'm your host, Steve Lascalzo, and this is The Way. May the Force be with you, always. Always.